Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Welcome back to Yesterday Today. I'm your host, Bobby Kearns Jr. Let's begin. Since our last broadcast, all of Mecklenburg County in Charlotte, North Carolina has been ordered to stay inside as of yesterday. And if you were counting on me to tell you that, remember, this show is called Yesterday Today. So we're already a couple steps behind. Up in Washington, Democrats and Republicans are debating bills about coronavirus economic relief plans, and they can't seem to come to an agreement. You know, it's nice to know that some things never really do change. Now viewers, I have a question for you. Do you know what hardship looks like? Do you know what stress looks like? Well, if you don't, look no further than the mayor of Chicago. This is her before photo, and this is her photo last week. Chicago, what did y'all do to this poor woman? That is the face of a broken spirit. I mean, that right there is worse than Obama's before and after photos. Black don't crack, but a show do scowl. This lady is the physical representation of 2020, and we all need some help. Somebody get this lady a bed and some shut-eye. And now, we're gonna cut to Wayne for the weather. Wayne? Wayne? It appears that Wayne's job was deemed non-essential because of the lack of people outside. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Our weatherman was deemed non-essential. And in that case, why am I here? This is yesterday's news. I don't even understand why this show exists. I don't get. Now on to our last story of the day. $35,000 of food was thrown away at a grocery store in Pennsylvania because a woman intentionally coughed on it without being sick. Now look, I know this woman is the worst and she is definitely under arrest. But look, if you're gonna do something this dumb, Go big or go home. I mean, look, forget the grocery store. Go down to the car lot and cough in a Rolls Royce and see if they throw it away. They might just throw you the keys. I mean, hey, you won't find out unless you try it, but that's our show. Thanks so much for watching this episode of Yesterday Today. I've been your host, Bobby Kearns Jr. Tune in next time for more news. Don't kill your family while you're all stuck inside. And remember, stay happy. And you've been listening to Yesterday Today News, the quarantine edition episode. Thank you, Bobby Kearns. And coming up next on Arts Express. Mass graves to hide the number of civilians killed when the U.S. invaded Panama. What does the Pentagon say about it? They don't. They won't talk about it. You've all seen the headlines, Roseanne investigated for child abuse, Liz's face ravaged by killer disease, Oprah's love crisis, Dolly in agony after breast surgery. How do they get away with that? Maybe after tonight, they won't anymore. The Japanese lobby is powerful enough that it can block most legislation that it opposes, and they're doing it better in many cases uh, than the American companies are doing. I'm Mike Wallace. I'm Morley Safer. I'm Harry Reasoner. I'm Ed Bradley. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Meredith Vieira. Those stories and more tonight on 60 Minutes. Before Governor Cuomo, there was Mike Wallace. So what is it about workplaces in the public eye that breeds sexual harassment? Is it the workplace or the powerful figures inhabiting them? Here to shed some light on that and taking our Arts Express hot seat this week is longtime veteran producer through the decades of 60 Minutes, Ira Rosen, as revealed in his tell-all book, Ticking Clock, Behind the Scenes at 60 Minutes. Rosen tears back the curtain of this oldest, most-watched, over-half-a-century investigative news show in his book, and as we investigate the investigators including Rosen's revelations about how the Soviet Union got hold of U.S. atomic bomb secrets that had nothing to do with the Rosenbergs. And does he think that exonerates their execution by the U.S. government? And if it does, will Rosen say 
or not. As for the dark side of Wallace, regarding both women and men, quote, I was trapped with Mike Wallace. Here's Ira Rosen. Hey, how are you? I love WBAI. As a kid, I listened to it all the time. I had a great station. <laughs> great. Okay. Now, despite your glowing words and ticking clock about working with Mike Wallace and his enormous stature, you also write, quote, I was trapped with Wallace. What can you say about that? Well, I he wouldn't let me, um, you know, people have relationships. And uh, there was a period of time when I was working with Mike that I wanted to go work with Diane Sawyer, who had just had just begun on 60 Minutes. And, uh, you know, we, he and I needed a break from each other. Um, you know, he I learned an enormous amount from working with Mike, but he also was incredibly abusive towards me. And I just felt that I needed to get away from him. And Diane wanted me to work with him, with her, and um, he just wouldn't let me go. So that's what I meant by being trapped. And what can you say about some of these subjects highlighted in Ticking Clock, in particular, the untold story of how the Soviets built their atom bomb without the help of the Rosenbergs? Oh, it's an amazing story. I mean, um, we I was doing a profile of uh, Edward Teller at the time who created the American H-bomb, and Teller's um, had great admiration for Andrei Sakharov. And so... You know, you have to remember 60 Minutes back then, especially, we had a kind of an unlimited budget. And, um, you know, so we just jumped a plane and go to Moscow. And so I went to Moscow, and there was a CBS bureau chief there who arranged a meeting with Sakharov. And uh, he agreed to go on camera. And what was, what was so magical about that day was uh, I was there with Mike Wallace, and uh, we, we go pick up Andre Sakharov in his apartment. And he had an apartment that was filled with dissidents. And, you know, he had won the Nobel uh, Peace Prize, so the Soviets kind of left him alone. And Elena Bonner comes out, his wife, and says, you make sure you bring him back by 3 o'clock today. And I said, yes, Mrs. Bonner, we, we certainly will. They apparently only had one key to their apartment. Um, and so we go and we do the interview, and we and at the interview... Um, we ask about the Rosenbergs, and uh, he says, no, no, no. The way we learned how to build the bomb was we would go out into the Siberian snow after a U.S. Uh, nuclear test, and remember back then it was, uh, you know, airborne tests. And so after a nuclear test, the fallout would carry over to Siberia, and, and it would drop down, and they would gather in the snow the, the fallout from, from this, and they would then analyze what was in the U.S. bombs from that fallout that they would uh, pick up in the snow. And he said, that's really how we learn the components of, of the bomb, which I found fascinating. Yeah. Uh, end of that story, though, is we bring, we, we, we have a good time with, with uh, Dr. Sakharov. We go out to Red Square and we walk around with him and it's now late and, and uh, we get him back after three o'clock. And uh, he had been locked out of the apartment. True to her word, Elena Bonner just kept her husband locked out. I, I told you to be here at three. You weren't here at three. Goodbye. Uh-huh. And he 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 stood. He was in in a in a stairway in in Moscow in a cold day. And uh, you know he just he said, "No, I'm fine. I'm fine. You guys could go. I've been like he's been through this before." <laughs> so, what do your revelations say about that? What do you think that says about the execution of the Rosenbergs? Well, I don't. I can't really speak about the execution of the Rosenbergs. I could just tell you that particular story. That doesn't necessarily now say that they didn't um, contribute a knowledge and and uh, information. Um, you know, I don't know if they did or if they didn't. Um, but but in terms of their knowledge, in terms of building the bomb. Sakharov put much more importance to what was gathered in the snows of Siberia than from anything. Now, what are your thoughts about why a newsroom like 60 Minutes has been a petri dish for sexual harassment and assault, including Mike Wallace and Charlie Rose? And is it something about that kind of workplace or those particular personalities that inhabit the premises? and who are truth-seekers but tarnish truth personally in that regard. 
Well, there's a lot. There's a lot in that question. I mean, I don't. I don't accept that it was necessarily a petri dish. I would, let me tell you about my experience with Wallace, and you know, I, I believe in talking. You know, to what I see firsthand, and and he he um, he was he absolutely harassed women. I mean, he would be snapping bra straps and hitting them. You know, in places that they shouldn't be hit. Um, you know, one woman in particular who was a friend of mine, a uh, very, very, you know, incredible producer, um, he, she, wa- she made a mistake one day of walking by him and he smacked her in the behind and she turned and slapped him in the face. And he immediately said, what the hell is her problem? And that was kind of his attitude. Um, and, and as I wrote in my book, Ticking Clock, what I, what I, and upon reflecting it all and thinking about it over, you know, the course of time, I don't think I would have survived, um, had I been a 26 year old woman in that, uh, office working for Wallace at the time who had to endure be, having their bra strap snapped on a daily basis or a weekly basis, whatever it was, or being groped. Um, you know, I, you know, it was hard enough, you know, the way he treated the men, but it was abusive the way he treated some of the women. And I think, you know, people make their own individual choices back then. We're not talking, of, you know, the, the Me Too movement is a long-needed movement, and it, and it still has a long way to go and um, has a lot more work to be done. But back then, there was really no Me Too movement. And the women um, on the show, the women that I knew and who I worked with, uh, made a choice that they wanted their careers, they wanted to stay on the broadcast, and they wanted to, to uh, you know, keep working uh, with them. Um, and so, some did move on, and some some moved on elsewhere. But um, you know, in in uh, those cases, um, it was a different time, especially with someone like Wallace. Now, regarding ticking clock and your observations in general, what have you observed as most striking in terms of the challenges? reporting on the news now regarding the recent rise in censorship politically and culturally in this country? Well, again, um, you know, when you say censorship, you know, I'm not sure how you're defining censorship. Well, the cancel culture. The, oh, well, well, I kind of look at these. I, when, when, when you mention the word censorship, I kind of think of it as, um, you know, suppression of, of certain stories. Um, for example... Um, when I did uh, this, the investigation on the opiate epidemic with the Washington Post, which you know probably is one of the stories I'm most proud of, um, we investigated corporate America and the <clears throat> corporate America responsibility for creating the opiate epidemic. Um, and there was you know enormous pressure um, put upon us at that time. Um, you know, a lot of law firms involved and a lot of corporate entities involved, but. We reported the story basically about how the DEA at the time had their powers neutered to enforce, uh, uh, make enforcement efforts against corporate America. And um, it resulted in Congressman Marino, who's going to be named as Donald Trump's new drug czar, uh, being removed from that position two days after we did the story. And I think what helped enormously was that we had two great institutions. We had 60 Minutes and the Washington Post together. Um, kind of, you, you can't, you, maybe you could you divide and conquer one, you can't divide and conquer both. And uh, when we did the story, the Washington Post put it on the front page, banner headline, you know, several pages on the insert on a Sunday. And we, we broadcast it that Sunday night. So, you know, that's how you you kind of get through some of this stuff. But, you know, not every uh, journalistic institution has the powers of 60 Minutes and the reach of 60 Minutes or even the Washington Post. Um, and we've seen this, you know, out there where, um, you know, usually it's, you know, where corporations play heavy um, with, with uh, you know, journalism outfits. Um but that was one of the great things about working in 60 Minutes. You, you, I, I often equated it to being like Superman, where you have superpowers. You get the wrongfully convicted out of jail. You take on uh, corporations that right the wrongs of society. Um, and it really is. It's, it, it, it gives you kind of magical powers. 
Okay, thank you, Ira Rosen, for calling into the show about Ticking Clock. Thanks so much for having me. Be well. And Ticking Clock is published by St. Martin's Press. This is John Leguizamo, and I want to give a shout-out to everybody. Get political. (laughs) Get your political on. This is John Leguizamo. up on Arts Express. Paul Robeson's Love Song, an audio play by Tayo Aluko. In Wisconsin, where the father of Jacob Blake said Thursday his son is being handcuffed to a hospital bed in Milwaukee, where he remains paralyzed from the waist down after he was shot seven times at point-blank range in the back by a Kenosha police officer. Jacob Blake's Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, and the walls come a tumbling down. And is that a record? My, My song, song from, from Paul. Paul. June 12, 1949. 1949. Grand? <laughs> and, and Paul Robeson? No, you don't mean. No. <laughs> Mr. Robeson, you're reported as denouncing your government in Paris. What do you have to say for yourself? One more question, Mr. Mr. Robeson. Mr. Robeson. Mr. Robeson. Mr. Robeson. Mr. Robeson. Mr. Robeson. Are you planning to return to Russia soon, Mr. Robeson? Are you really planning to put that love song on the album, Paul? And I'm talking about I am third generation refugee, and I will not have anybody who disrespects this country coming into my studio to use it to spread Soviet propaganda. Now falls the lily, all her sweetness Okay, Paul Robeson, I will ask you straight. What's going on between you and Jessica Winger? Paul, we gotta get you out of here. There's some marauding white youths up ahead and they're, they're each car dragging people out, roughing them up. Sydney, get them back to New York, go. Go now. Paul, call me when you get home. Oh, 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 okay. All right. Come and fetch noch unser eusgebänkte Show. Sveta poit und unser trot mir seinen Everybody will understand that the surest way to get police protection is to have it very clear that we'll protect ourselves. Every woman in the country will want her own personal copy, <laughs> just for that one track. Oh, please, Jessica. <laughs> Go back to Russia! Crazy commie crowd wrecks peaceful peak skill. Hitler was right! Let's hear Paul Rubson's love song. Launches April 9th. And those were scenes from Paul Robeson's love song, an audio play by Tayo Aluko, an extraordinary production Aluko has composed featuring the words and music of late legendary African-American concert artist, stage and film actor, and a political victim for his progressive views during the Red Scare, whose U.S. government persecution contributed to his death. And leading up to Robeson's birthday on April 9th, the virtual presentation of Paul Robeson's love song. Arts Express contributor Tayo Aluko reports on his production from Liverpool. Now 
sleeps the crimson petal, now the white. No waves the cypress on the Paul Robeson's Love Song, an audio play by Tayo Aluko, launches April 9th. The gold in the My name is Tayo Aluko. I'm a Nigerian. I live in Liverpool in England, uh, where I've lived since 1989. I was singing uh, in a, at an event in Liverpool, after which a lady said to me, you remind me of Paul Robeson. Do you sing many of his songs? I had to confess that, that I didn't know the name and didn't know his music. Two months after that, I stumbled on his biography in the library in Liverpool, borrowed it, read it, and that book changed my life. Paul's father was a Presbyterian church minister. The family was in abject poverty, but nonetheless, Paul managed to get a scholarship at Rutgers College, which is now Rutgers University. And he excelled there on the sports field, in debating, as an orator, as a scholar, and uh, as an actor. He then studied law at Columbia University and graduated and worked for a very short time as a trainee in a, a legal office in New York, but it became clear that the racism, both within the firm and basically in, in the legal profession, would not allow him to prosper, so his new wife, Islander Good, S.C. Robeson, and he decided that uh, he would try for a career on the stage because of his uh, remarkable voice and presence. And he became very successful very quickly, and he is perhaps best known for having played Joe in Showboat, from which Old Man River comes. He first played that role in London in 1928. And during that run of Showboat, he ran into Welsh miners who had walked all the way from the valleys in South Wales to London to highlight their plight, which was basically that they were being exploited by the English uh, mine owners. And this was the first time that Paul realized that uh, you didn't have to be black to be exploited. And this was the beginning of his uh, lifelong interest in socialism. Uh, from London, he would visit the Soviet Union in 1934 and several times after that. It was also in London that he met several Africans while he was studying at the School of Oriental and African Studies. He studied linguistics there. His encounters with with Africans and people from other British colonies who were all interested in independence gave him an internationalist insight and the struggle for independence and anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism became dear to him. So this man who was a basically an international star of stage and screen was also a student at uh, the School of Oriental and African Studies but he was also becoming very very radical very left-wing but for a long time this didn't impinge on his career which just kept being successful during and after the second world war the soviet union began to be seen as uh, an enemy of the West. And people like Paul, who remained loyal to the cause of socialism and communism, began to be seen as threats to American society. And this culminated in Paul making a speech while on tour in Europe in 1949 at at the Paris Peace Conference, which said something like what you know, people like Muhammad Ali would say years later, that why should African Americans go to war against the Soviet Union when in their own country they are less than second-class citizens? 
He had always said that from the first time he visited the Soviet Union, that's when he felt for the first time like a real man with a capital M. He felt no racism, or he perceived uh, in the socialist system the equality of all races, which is why he was convinced that socialism was a better system than the capitalism of uh, the United States and, and Europe. However, when he made that speech, it was reported in the American press as him saying that he loved the Soviet Union more than he loved his country. Welcome home, Mr. Robeson. Jerika Brown, Washington Mr. Post. Robeson, Mr. Robeson, Christine Miller from the New York Times. Mr. Robeson, you're reported as denouncing your government in Paris. What do you have to say for yourself? I prefer to give what I have to say to papers like The Daily Worker. Did you not say that you loved Russia more than any other country? I said that I love the America of the working class. And I love the working class of England, France, and many other countries. And I very deeply love the People's Republics of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union for their fight for the freedom of my people and for all the white working people of the world. So he turned literally overnight from being one of the most popular people in the country to public enemy number one. And the extent to which he was now reviled and feared was demonstrated when, uh, in August that year, 1949, he was due to give a, an outdoor concert in Peekskill, upstate New York. And by the time he got to Peekskill, it was clear that the concert was not going to go ahead. In, in fact, that his life was in danger if he showed up, because there was a... There was an anti-communist, racist, anti-Semitic mob intent, not just on preventing the concert from going ahead, but even lynching Paul Robeson if they could get their hands on him. Paul, we got to get you out of here. There's some marauding white youths up ahead, and they're, they're each car dragging people out, roughing them up. Yeah, but look, the police are there. They're just standing, watching, doing nothing. No, Come on. Be in the car, Sydney. Get him out of here. Get him the hell out of here. Get him back to New York. Go. Go now. Paul, call me when you get home. Oh, 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 okay. All right. So the concert was abandoned. He went back to New York and was determined to return. I'll be back in Peekskill. And we'll see that our women and our children are not harmed again. Everybody will understand that the surest way to get police protection is to have it very clear that we'll protect ourselves. And so the concert was rearranged for a few days later, and the labor unions in New York organized for a guard to be formed of literally a few thousand men, and I imagine some women too, to form a protective ring around the crowd and uh, around Paul Robeson when he appeared on stage. He held the concert, sang, and then left. But then as the crowd of thousands were leaving, they were attacked again this time clearly with the collusion of the police. Again, there was a lot of violence. And this was reported in the press as communists causing trouble in Peekskill. Communists, Negroes, and Jews were seen inciting violence against the peace-loving residents of Peekskill yesterday after a concert by communist Negro singer Paul Robeson, the police said. Give us Robeson! We'll lynch the commie bastard! I was amazed. I mean, I hadn't even known about Paul Robeson, but... It was also clear to me that that event, even though it had been national news, was not known either, and that it was the closest that the United States had come to outright fascism until recently. The will remain the voice of the patriotic heroes who keep America safe and salute the American flag. Jews will not replace us. And that was the inspiration for this new play, Paul Robeson's Love Song. In trying to tell the story to a contemporary audience, I came up with the idea of Paul recording an album over almost a year 
1949. Several sessions in this recording studio, which is owned by friends of his and Eslander, the, the characters, you know, the recording studio are all fictional. The owner, Benjamin Winger, is very loyal to the United States and grateful to the United States for having taken, taken his family in. And his wife, Jessica, is perhaps attracted to Paul Robeson and not afraid to show it and um, persuades him to record one particular song which is the one that uh, ends up being found by her grandchildren My Song from Paul and Paul Robeson? No, you don't mean no In Kenosha, Wisconsin, during the demonstrations that were taking place after the shooting of Jacob Blake. Who was filmed killing two people and injuring a third with an AR-15 assault rifle during protests in Kenosha Tuesday. If convicted on I have always felt that Paul Robeson has been and remains very unjustly overlooked by the United States and the world. And that's because, in my opinion... Most of what he said was absolutely true. That socialism is a preferable system to capitalism. And I think he was deliberately sidelined in his time and that his story has been deliberately suppressed since then. My argument is that we are in desperate times and radical measures, radical stories need to be heard and names of people like Paul Robeson need to be heard. Paul Robeson's love song is an attempt to tell that story. Von grünem Palmenland bis Weißenland von Schnee I sing four songs in the play. The first one is... Um, now Sleeps the Crimson Petal um, by an English composer called Roger Quilter. The second song is called in English the Warsaw Ghetto Resistance Song, Zognit uh, Kaimo, which Paul Robeson sang in Yiddish, one of the many languages that he spoke. And this particular song was written by Hirsch Glick, inspired by the uprising in the Warsaw Ghetto in 1943. So Zognit Kainal uh, is a very special song to Jewish people around the world, and it was to Paul Robeson, and he sang it in Yiddish. The third song is one that he recorded with his son Paul Jr. He and his father formed a company called Othello Records and there are four albums that were released in this time when the only places he could get records made were outside of his country. And this one song, um, Little Girl of Hiroshima, was one of the those that he recorded in this period. Uh, an anti-war song, a response to the Hiroshima bomb. The words by Turkish poet Nassim Hikmet and the music by Czech composer called uh, Vaclav Trojan. This little maiden seared by strife O stranger, please do this for me Your name for mankind's peace and life and peace and life for all like me. And peace and life for all like me. The last song is the actual love song, which comes from the film Sanders of the River, which Robeson filmed in the UK in the 1930s. 
He ended up hating the film because, unbeknownst to him, it turned out to be a propaganda film for British imperialism in Africa. That notwithstanding, it is a pretty song which you can hear at the very end of Paul Robeson's love song. I tried to draw parallels between Paul Robeson's time and this time. For example, the fact that the Democratic Party, to my mind, clearly did all they could to prevent Bernie Sanders from becoming the nominee. Um, they did it in 2016 and they did it in 2020, despite the fact that Bernie Sanders was clearly very popular among the American public at large. I mean, you just have to remember the the huge crowds that he drew, including, you know, especially among young people. Um, so the machinations that prevented him from becoming a nominee in 2016 and 2020 had actually been played out in 1948 uh, by the Democratic Party in preventing Henry Wallace from being the nominee then. Henry Wallace had been vice president to Roosevelt, and when he won, he had been very progressive. In fact, I think he had been a member of the Communist Party. And when he decided to run for president, for the nomination for president of the Democratic Party, he was stymied, and he left the Democratic Party to run under the Progressive Party ticket. And Robeson supported him, campaigned for him, toured with him, but they got nowhere, and uh, they ended up with 2.5% of the vote. The incidental music which runs through the play is an instrumental version of a song called The House I Live In, which was composed by Earl Robinson and the words written by Abel Miropol, who, of course, wrote Strange Fruit and also adopted the children of the Rosenbergs who were executed by the U.S. government. I've always thought of this song as the soundtrack to a lost opportunity the lost opportunity of taking people like Paul Robeson seriously. It always seemed to me very poignant. I'd like to suggest to listeners that if they can go online and get the footage of the peak scale riots, turn the sound down and play The House I Live In, I can almost guarantee that it will move you to tears. Play some footage of the Capitol riots of January 6th. Turn the sound down and play Paul Robeson singing The House I Live In. That will also move you to tears. The town I live in, the street, the house, the room, the pavement of the city or a garden all in bloom, the church, the school, the clubhouse, a million lights I see, but especially the people, that's America to me, but especially the people. Who's the true America, is the question. That's the true America. Paul Robeson's love song. The idea is to have many people playing it on that day, over the airwaves and thereafter it will be available to listen to stream from my website. Paul Robeson's Love Song, an audio play by Tayo Aluko, will be launched on Paul Robeson's birthday, April 9th, 2021. It will be available thereafter from tayoalukoandfriends.com. And more information about Paul Robeson's love song 
and what's been going down politically in the UK can be found at tayoalugoandfriends.com. And now on Arts Express, in the Radio Drama Corner... Hi, this is Jack Shalom. The name of Canadian humorist Stephen Leacock is not that familiar these days to Americans, but in the early decades of the 20th century, he was one of the best-known English-speaking humorists in the world. He was sometimes called the Canadian Mark Twain. Well, unlike Mark Twain, he was a staunch conservative, But that didn't stop him from launching some withering attacks on the parasitical millionaires with whom he came into contact. We think you'll enjoy this story of his called How to Make a Million Dollars. How to Make a Million Dollars I mix a good deal with the millionaires. I like them. I like their faces. I like the way they live. I like the things they eat. The more we mix together, the better I like the things we mix. Especially, I like the way they dress. Their gray check trousers, their white check waistcoats, their heavy gold chains, and the signet rings that they sign their checks with. My, they look nice. Get six or seven of them sitting together in the club, and it's a treat to see them. And if they get the least dust on them, men come in and brush it off. Yes, and are glad to. I'd like to take some of the dust off them myself. What I do love is to walk up and down among them and catch the little scraps of conversation. The other day I heard one lean forward and say, Well, I offered him a million and a half and said I wouldn't give a cent more. He could either take it or leave it. I just longed to break in and say, Wait, (laughs) what? A million and a half? Oh, say that again. Offer it to me to either take it or leave it. Do try me once. I know I can. Or here, make it a plain million and let's call it done. Not that these men are careless over money. No, sir, don't think it. Of course, they don't take much account of big money, a hundred thousand dollars at a shot or anything of that sort. But little money? You've no idea till you know them how anxious they get about a cent, or half a cent, or less. All this shows, of course, that I've been studying how the millionaires do it. I have. For years I thought it might be helpful to young men just beginning to work and anxious to stop. You know, many a man realizes late in life that if when he was a boy he had known what he knows now instead of being what he is, he might be what he won't. But how few boys stop to think that if they knew what they don't know instead of being what they will be, they wouldn't be. These are awful thoughts. At any rate, I've been gathering hints on how it is they do it. One thing I'm sure about, if a young man wants to make a million dollars, he's got to be mighty careful about his diet and his living. Now this may seem hard, but success is only achieved with pains. There is no use in a young man who hopes to make a million dollars thinking he's entitled to get up at 7.30, eat poached eggs, drink cold water at lunch, and go to bed at 10 p.m. You can't do it. I've seen too many millionaires for that. If you want to be a millionaire, 
You mustn't get up until 10 in the morning. They never do. They daren't. It would be as much as their business is worth if they were to be seen on the street at half past nine. And the old idea of abstemiousness is all wrong. To be a millionaire, you need champagne, lots of it and all the time. That and scotch whiskey and soda. You have to sit up nearly all night and drink buckets of it. This is what clears the brain for business next day. I've seen some of these men with their brains so clear in the morning, their faces look positively boiled. To live like this requires, of course, resolution. But you can buy that by the pint. Therefore, my dear young man, if you want to get moved on from your present status in business, change your life. When your landlady brings your bacon and eggs for breakfast, throw them out the window to the dog and tell her to bring you some chilled asparagus and a pint of Moselle. Then telephone to your employer that you'll be down about 11 o'clock. You'll get moved on, yes, very quickly. Just how the millionaires make the money is a difficult question, but one way is this. Strike the town with five cents in your pocket. They nearly all do this. They've told me time and time again, men with millions and millions, that the first time they struck town, they only had five cents. That seems to have given them their start. Of course, it's not easy to do. I've tried it several times. I, I nearly did it once. I borrowed five cents, carried it away out of town, and then turned and came back at the town with an awful rush. If I hadn't struck a beer saloon in the suburbs and spent the five cents, I might have been rich today. Another good plan is to start something. Something on a huge scale, something nobody ever thought of before. For instance, one man I know told me that once he was down in Mexico without a cent, he lost his five in striking Central America, and he noticed that they had no power plants. So he started some and made a mint of money. Another man that I know was once stranded in New York, absolutely without a nickel. Well, it occurred to him that what was needed were buildings, 10 stories higher than any that had been put up. So he built two and sold them right away. Ever so many millionaires begin in some such simple way as that is, of course, a much easier way than any of these. I almost hate to tell this because I want to do it myself. I learned of it just by chance one night at the club. There is one old man there, extremely rich, with one of the best faces of the lot, just like a hyena. I never used to know how he got so rich. So one evening I asked one of the millionaires how old Bloggs had made his money. <laughs> how he made it? He answered with a sneer. Why he made it? By taking it out of widows and orphans. Widows and orphans, I thought. What an excellent idea. But who would have suspected that they had it? And how, I asked cautiously, did he go at it to get it out of them? Why, the man answered, he just 
ground them under his heels. That was how. Now, isn't that simple? I've thought of that conversation often since, and I mean to try it. If I can get hold of them, I'll grind them quick enough. But how to get them? Most of the widows I know look pretty solid for that sort of thing, and as for orphans, it, it must take an awful lot of them. Meantime, I am waiting, and if I ever get a large bunch of orphans all together, I'll stamp on them and see. I find, too, on inquiry, that you can also grind it out of clergymen. They say they grind nicely. But perhaps orphans are easier. listening to How to Make a Million Dollars by Stephen Leacock, performed by myself, Jack Shalom. The music heard was Funkerific by Kevin McLeod and Sunny Day by Mastermind HS. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. That's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. Wake up all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do Put it in our minds Surely things will work out They do it every time The world won't get no better If we just let it be The world won't get no better We gotta change it Just you and me Change again, change again, just you and me. Change again, change again.